I'm lecturing on Pericles today and if you're a regular of this series and you're worried that you can't hear any rustling or coughing or uh, occasional laughter from the audience of Oxford students that's because I'm re-recording this lecture not live uh, but specifically to be podcast because of a problem with the quality of the live recording. So today I'm lecturing on Pericles which is a problematic play dating from around 1607. It's always been on the edges of the Shakespearean canon and that's in part because, as I'm going to focus my attention on today, it was not printed as part of the collected plays in the first folio of 1623. We'll come on to why that might be and more importantly what its implications have been for readings of the play in a moment. But I want to start, as usual, with a summary of the plot. Pericles is an episodic romance play, so it's romance in the medieval sense of journeying or questing, in the sense of a combination of human and supernatural events which often take place over a long period of time. So if you know any medieval uh, romances, um, like uh, those of Mallory, for example, or the modern uh, stories like The Lord of the Rings, which are heavily influenced by them, you'll have a sense what what's meant. The play is narrated by a chorus figure, the poet John Gower, and he introduces the, our first scene in Antioch. In Antioch, the king is in an incestuous relationship with his daughter. Pericles has travelled to Antioch to woo her, and like all her potential suitors, he has to answer a riddle. Realising that he is doomed to death, if he reveals the answer, incest, he will be executed, or if he fails to, he will also be executed, Pericles flees and he is pursued by an assassin from the king's court and the escape from this assassin um, perpetuates, propels his journey through the rest of the play. Arriving next in the port of Tarsus, Pericles encounters a famine and distributes corn to relieve the city. Its rulers, Cleon and Dionysa, swear allegiance to Pericles in gratitude for what he has done. He can't stay long there, though, because he's a hunted man, so he goes back to sea. Next, he is shipwrecked at Pentapolis, where some fishermen retrieve his father's armour from the sea. At court, the disguised Pericles, wearing this rusty armour, presents himself in a tournament to win the hand of the daughter of King Simonides, Thaser. He beats the other suitors in the tournament and gains Thaser in marriage. With the pregnant Thaser, he sets out for home in Tyre. During a storm, though, Thaser apparently dies in childbirth and is cast overboard in a coffin. The grief-stricken Pericles takes his newborn baby daughter Marina to Tarsus, where he leaves her with Cleon and Dionysa for safekeeping. Thaser, though, is found on the shore by a physician who manages to revive her, he takes her to the temple of Diana in Ephesus. Time passes, Marina grows up, Dionysus is jealous of her and plans to have her murdered. So Dionysus hires Leonine to kill Marina, but he is interrupted by the arrival of pirates who abduct her. In Mytilene, she is sold by the pirates to the brothel keeper Bolt, and the board tries to induct her into the sex trade. Marina refuses to take part. Discovering the death of his daughter, as he thinks, Pericles vows to spend the rest of his days 
hair and beard uncut, in mourning his wife and daughter. Meanwhile, in Mytilene, Marina's virtue converts the governor, Lysimachus, from his lust and manages to maintain her chastity. Pericles arrives. Lysimachus suggests that Marina will cheer him. She visits him and sings, and they discover they are father and daughter. In a dream, Pericles is directed to Diana's temple. He arrives to find Thesa, so the family is reunited, and Marina marries Lysimachus. Now we can see from this outline a number of correspondences with other of Shakespeare's plays. Most obviously perhaps Pericles shares with The Winter's Tale, The Tempest and Cymbeline a cross-generational story. Like Perdita, Marina in, the, in Pericles grows from babyhood to marriageability over the course of the play. And both are like inverse tragedies in being structured uh, over this female lifespan from infancy to marriageability. Like Hermione, again in The Winter's Tale, Thesa dies shortly after childbirth. And like Hermione, again, she returns from the dead. Both returns, both of these wives returning are miraculous in their different ways. Like Cymbeline, Pericles has an episodic plot and a weakness, we might say, for flat or two-dimensional storybook characters. The queen, uh, the stepmother in Cymbeline, and Dionysa in Pericles, for instance, are both wicked stepmother figures. Like the Tempest, Pericles draws on the magical associations of the sea to separate and reunite families. And there are echoes of something similar in the play I discussed two weeks ago, Comedy of Errors. Like Emilia in Comedy of Errors, Thesa is taken to the Abbey in Ephesus, obviously the place for shipwrecked wives sitting it out unimpeachably before their husbands are restored to them. There are other echoes too. The brothel recalls measure for measure, and in both plays it has a similar role in contradistinction to a place of sanctity, the convent in Measure for Measure, the abbey here in Pericles. Pirates take on a similar random role in Hamlet. They do seem a sort of device of last resort for Shakespeare. How do we get out of this one? Oh, let's get the pirates in. The chorus figure in Pericles perhaps recalls something of the structure of Henry V, divided into acts by narrative speeches. And if we think about the plays Shakespeare has, most, has written most recently, thinking about the play in 1607, we can see specific points of comparison. The famine, as in Coriolanus, the murderous queen, as in Macbeth, the reunion of father and estranged daughter from King Lear. So all that is to show that Pericles can be fitted thematically alongside any number of Shakespeare plays. Why then has it been such an outsider in the canon a play only rarely performed and often discussed in apologetic terms, trying to explain away its plot and its language. Let's just take a step back and think about the way the first folio has shaped Shakespeare's reputation. We've touched on this in other lectures, but the first folio, the first collected edition of Shakespeare's plays, doesn't include uh, poems, but the first collected edition of Shakespeare's plays, printed in 1623, after Shakespeare's death. What is the importance, what's the significance of that volume? Well, for a start, it gives us half the plays which we don't otherwise, we wouldn't otherwise have. But it gives us some ways of thinking about those plays as well. It's the first folio that gives us the division of Shakespeare's plays into the three categories, comedies, histories and tragedies. 
identifying genre, therefore, rather than chronology or theme, as the way of understanding Shakespeare's work. In the last lecture, thinking about teleology, forward progression, in Richard III, we discussed how the particular historical arrangement of the English history plays makes certain kinds of reading of those plays more prominent in the folio than in their previous incarnations as more occasional publications or performances. The first folio has, I think, contributed to ongoing critical difficulties in understanding connections between Shakespeare's poetry and his plays, since it doesn't include the sonnets or the Rape of Lucrece or Venus and Adonis. It inaugurates the editorial tradition of undervaluing quarto texts, what early bibliographers often dubbed bad quartos, following Hemmings and Condell's description in the prefatory epistle to the folio to the great variety of readers. You may have seen some of these plays for sale individually before Hemmings and Condell admit to potential buyers of this expensive book. In fact, a keen play buyer might already own versions of half the plays that are being republished in the folio, and that might be a material factor in weighing up whether it's attractive to purchase. But Hemmings and Gondel say you may have already bought them, but those versions were pirated ones, back to those pirates. Here they say, we have published them as where before you were abused with diverse stolen and surreptitious copies, maimed and deformed by the frauds and stealths of injurious impostors that exposed them. Even those are now offered to your view cured and perfect of their limbs, and all the rest absolute in their numbers, as he conceived them. The idea that the folio texts are cured and perfect of their limbs, like the claim in the same letter that Shakespeare never blotted a line and therefore never revised his plays, have only recently begun to be recognised by scholars as a sales pitch, rather than as an accurate documentary account of Shakespeare's writing and publishing practices. Most prominently, perhaps, of all the folio's legacy tours, it has seemed to give an authoritative imprimatur to the plays included in it. All the rest, say Hemmings and Condell, absolute in their numbers, as he conceived them, absolute in their numbers. So it has seemed to give us the absolute uh, canon of Shakespeare's plays, and therefore implicitly to make an authoritative statement about the plays it does not include. The catalogue page to the folio includes the titles of 35 plays. In fact, there are 36 plays in the volume. Troilus and Cressida is also included, but it doesn't make it onto the catalogue, probably because the rights for it came after that page had been printed. The folio was a huge logistical printing enterprise and was printed over several months. Of the plays we now consider Shakespearean, the folio does not include The Two Noble Kinsmen, that's a play published under the joint names of Shakespeare and John Fletcher in 1634. Nor does it include Pericles, published in quarto under Shakespeare's sole name in 1609. Now, it's sometimes argued that these plays are excluded because they were known to be collaborative. But we know Henry VIII, which is in the folio, is also collaborative, again with John Fletcher. And in addition, a new wave of scholarship has identified all kinds of collaboration in Shakespeare's collected works. We now know that collaboration, which could mean any number of practices from joint working, you know, working uh, together, revising existing plays, play patching, adding a speech or two, uh, finishing a play, 
providing uh, the plot for someone else to finish. These are all not quite normal practices in the early modern theatre. The majority of plays performed during this period are, in, in one of these senses, if not more than one, collaborative. For a long time, though, criticism maintained that Shakespeare was immune to this industry-wide practice. But now various kinds of investigation, much of it aided by computer stylometric testing, have suggested different and new collaborations. We now think that the first part of Henry VI was probably written with Nash, that Titus Andronicus was probably written with George Peel, that Timon of Athens was probably written with Middleton, as well as the two Fletcher collaborations, Henry VIII and Two Noble Kinsmen. And thanks to the recent complete Oxford edition of Middleton's works, we now have a strongly argued case that the texts we have of Measure for Measure and of Macbeth, both published only in the first folio, show evidence of later revision, probably for a stage revival, by Thomas Middleton. So, current scholarship would suggest that a number of plays which are included in the first folio show signs of collaborative work of one sort or another and that therefore it is not fully logical to suggest that Pericles is excluded for that reason. I'm going to talk about the implications of collaboration on Pericles in a minute. In addition, recent cases have been made for Shakespearean traces in other plays that we don't usually think of as Shakespeare's. So Shakespeare is one of the collaborators in the censored, quite possibly unperformed, manuscript play Thomas More, he probably contributed his bits to the play in about 1604. It's really well worth looking at John Jowett's new Arden edition if you're interested in Shakespeare's representation of outsiders. For instance, this is a play uh, featuring a riot against immigrants in London. Or if you're interested in Shakespeare's religious attitudes, since Thomas More was, of course, renowned as a Catholic martyr. It's also been suggested that the domestic tragedy Arden of Faversham has signs of Shakespeare in it that Shakespeare may have written the additional passages to the popular revenge tragedy, The Spanish Tragedy, and that history plays including Thomas of Woodstock and Edward III might also be at least in part by him. All of these cases are backed up by compelling recent scholarship, although only Thomas More has been canonised, as it were, by inclusion in the Arden series and in many collected Shakespeare editions, including the Oxford and the RSC. So, with a number of other potentially Shakespearean plays, which, like Pericles, are also on the margins of the canon. Added to this list should be the lost plays. Francis Mears, writing in 1598, praises a play among a list of current Shakespeare plays called Love's Labours One. It's a play which is either lost or which represents an alternative title for a romantic comedy we know under a different name, Much Ado or All's Well That Ends Well, have been proposed uh, in that regard. Recent interest in another lost play, Cardinio, has been very active. For a lost play, it has had a surprising number of performances. Writing it has become one of the must-do tasks of a certain vintage of Shakespeareans. There have been versions uh, in the last few years by Stephen Greenblatt, by Gary Taylor and by Greg Doran. Cardinio was apparently co-written with Fletcher but has not survived, unless the controversial play Double Falsehood is a restoration adaptation of it. Added to this is the evidence that Shakespeare's name is used on a number of title pages in this period, attached 
perhaps for commercial reasons, to plays we now do not think he wrote, A Yorkshire Tragedy for One or The London Puritan. Both now tend to be attributed to Middleton. So this is a long excursus to suggest that all this detail uh, gives us a view of the extent of Shakespeare's canon as in flux. We no longer subscribe to the view that the folio gives us the authoritative and final judgment on the full extent of Shakespeare's writing, and debates about Shakespeare's authorship and the presence of collaboration in his work are currently undergoing a very heated period in Shakespeare studies. If you Google the work on Middleton as a reviser of Macbeth, for instance, you'll be able to take the high temperature of that particular academic spat. Let's try and bring some of this back to Pericles. I know I've gone on uh, in a bit of a curve around it. So it's the play's absence from the first folio that has placed it on the margins of Shakespeare's work. And so too has recent work on it as a collaboration. It's now generally thought on the basis of stylistic evidence that the first two acts of Pericles were written by George Wilkins and that Shakespeare supplied the remainder, the second half of the play. Wilkins is a writer associated with a number of texts from the period 1606 to 8, including a domestic tragedy called The Miseries of Enforced Marriage, which takes as its source the same true crime story as prompts a Yorkshire tragedy, that play attributed uh, to Shakespeare on its title page. He also wrote a travel play collaboratively with Rowley and Day called The Travels of the Three English Brothers. It has some structural and thematic connections with Pericles, and which is itself, of course, a travel play of sorts. But collaboration is, like the designation early I talked about in relation to the Comedy of Errors, a kind of shorthand for negative associations. Its connotations are not simply uh, chronological, but evaluative. And in this case, collaboration tends to signal something which is unfinished, divided, uneven, or in some other way, unsatisfactory. We tend to look for collaboration only where we find the aesthetic work lacking, say, in Timon of Athens. And therefore we judge collaboration by its failure to produce an integrated drama, for instance. Where Shakespeare is one of the authors in a proposed collaboration, a further factor enters. To say that part of the play is not by Shakespeare is immediately to suggest that that part of it is not very good. And in the case of Pericles, this is not at all helped by the unpleasant character of George Wilkins, as we know from biographical records. We all know this shouldn't matter, but his dodgy career as an innkeeper come brothel keeper, put on trial for kicking a pregnant woman in the belly, doesn't help. It's strange, in fact, that nobody has suggested Wilkins wrote the bits he might have been best suited for, the scenes in the Mytilene brothel. Judgments about the authorship of Pericles have been inseparable from judgments, uh, evaluative judgments of it. In their New Cambridge edition, Doreen Del Vecchio and Anthony Hammond strike out in a different direction. For them, the play is not collaborative, and it's well worth reading their introduction to the New Cambridge edition to see how they come to the conclusion. The connection, though, in their argument, is the same as in the old one. For them, the play is not collaborative because it is good. It is integrated, sophisticated, capable of successful performance, and therefore, in their view, it cannot be collaborative, or it doesn't need to be seen as collaborative. 
We can see here that by arguing that Pericles is not collaborative, in fact the negative associations of collaboration are confirmed. To argue that a play is good is necessarily to argue that it is single-authored. Something similar actually happens in Jonathan Bates' Arden edition of Titus Andronicus. He took the decision he could not rehabilitate that play's aesthetic reputation and seriously engage with the fact that it was collaboratively authored, or the question that it was collaboratively, collaboratively authored in the same argument. Now Titus Andronicus has gained its place in the canon, we can look again at the question of collaboration. We're not quite there yet, though, critically, with Pericles. I don't know whether Pericles is co-authored, and I don't really know how we would know. But I am interested in the way that the question over Shakespeare's complete authorship might resonate with some of the themes of this play of parentage and isolation. How we could link the question about collaboration with more thematic critical approaches to Pericles and how we might investigate whether or how this play works. And I want to do this not in the grudging or apologetic spirit of much criticism of Pericles but in an attempt to regain the spirit of the quarto title page. The text, published under Shakespeare's sole name in 1609, describes it as the late and much-admired play called Pericles' Prince of Tyre, with the true relation of the whole history, adventures and fortunes of the said prince, as also the no less strange and worthy accidents in the birth and life of his daughter, Marina, as it hath been diverse and sundry times acted by his majesty's servants at the Globe on Bankside. There were two editions of this much-admired play in 1609. No other play by Shakespeare since the early histories, first published a decade earlier, had had such immediate print popularity. A third quarto edition followed in 1611. Thomas Pavier printed it in 1619 as part of his collection of Shakespeare plays. This flash of publications, plus a novelised version of the story by George Wilkins, printed in 1608, all attest to Pericles' popularity. It's in sharp contrast to its later marginalisation. In this period, it is much the most popular play of Shakespeare's in print. In, in print terms, it is, it is his only big success of the, of the 17th century. And it is quite possibly also the most popular play in print of the Jacobean period by anyone. Lots of allusions to it in wider literary culture confirm this popularity the mock romance, The Night of the Burning Pestle, which was probably performed quite shortly after Pericles was first stage, cites it as just the kind of thing the citizen wife would want to see. In Fletcher's play The Woman's Prize, a sequel to Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew, there's a joke about wishing the master's wife were in a chest on board ship so she could be lost overboard, which seems to draw on Thesa's um, uh, shipwreck. Robert Taylor's The Hog Hath Lost Its Pearl hopes in its prologue to be as popular as Pericles. In 1629, writing about the poor reception of his own play, The New Inn, Johnson mocked audiences who would rather see some mouldy tale like Pericles. So there's evidence then that Pericles had a hold on audiences and readers and that it was a popular play. We owe it, surely, to try to understand why. From the start, Pericles engages compellingly with these questions of authority and authorship. In bringing on the medieval poet John Gower, whose Confessio Amantis was one of the sources for the play, 
Pericles stages its own questioning of who writes this story. Pericles comes via, but not from, Gower. Gower didn't make the story up either. The plot of the play has a much longer folkloric history, deriving from the popular and widely circulated ancient Greek tale of Apollonius of Tyre, who wanders around the Mediterranean world searching for his lost family. Gower's opening to the play confirms this ancient lineage. This is his opening. To sing a song that old was sung, from ashes ancient Gower is come, assuming man's infirmities to glad your ear and please your eyes. It hath been sung at festivals on ember eves and holidays, and lords and ladies in their lives have read it for restoratives. The purchase is to make men glorious, et bonum quo antiquus eomelius. That's a good thing improves with age. If you, born in these latter times, when wits more ripe, accept my rhymes, and that to hear an old man sing may to your wishes pleasure bring, I life for you would wish, and that I might waste it for you like taper light. The stress on the familiarity of this tale is insistent. This is a song that old was sung, ancient Gower is an old man, the Latin tag is a good thing improves with age. In a period in which newness had a high cultural value, especially in the theatre, where new blood, new plays were its lifeblood, it's a very striking opening. The language is self-consciously archaic. Medievalism, not medieval. And it confirms its antique qualities, its kind of retrospective, nostalgic tone in the metre of that speech I just read. This is not in Shakespeare's usual iambic pentameter meter, but in the octosyllabic couplets, rhyming couplets, that structure Gower's Confessio Amantis. So the play introduces itself via a dead poet come from the ashes as participating in a historic oral circulation of stories. That stress on singing suggests the ancient opening of the Iliad, for instance. The chorus in this play is more present than in any other of Shakespeare's. Gower's is actually the second largest role in the play, attesting to the importance of narration, telling rather than showing, for grounding the storyteller author rather than the agents or actors. Gower's presence in Pericles pushes questions of authorship away from the science of attribution and more towards theories of intertextuality which acknowledge the interrelatedness of all texts. The text, as Bart wrote memorably in The Death of the Author, is a tissue of citations drawn from the innumerable centres of culture. A tissue of citations drawn from the innumerable centres of culture. Thinking about Shakespeare in a web of interrelated texts, both his own sources, but also his work as the source of other things, such as the novelised version of the play published by Wilkins, to cash in on the popularity of the stage play. These, these kinds of thoughts decenter individual authorship more fruitfully, I think, than trying to dissect the play between collaborators. The opening speech from Gao that I just quoted moves straight into scene setting. We are in Antioch. I tell you what mine authors say, says Gower, disavowing uh, his own invention, perhaps because of the sordid tale he's about to unfold. This king unto him took a peer who died and left a female heir, so buxom, blithe and full of face as heaven had lent her all his grace, with whom the father liking took, 
and her to incest did provoke. Bad child, worse father, to entice his own to evil should be done by none. That the play moves from its dispersal of authorial identity in the voice of Gower on to this parable of perverse generation in incest further complicates its own depictions of creation. If we think about paternity uh, as a, uh, a very common metaphor for uh, artistic creation, particularly literary creation, we can start to see how these two themes come together. The play itself is created out of this incestuous relationship with which it begins. Pericles himself and his character take shape under the pressure of the twisted marriage plot set by the incestuous king. His peregrinations, which structure the rest of the play, are motivated by this traumatic early encounter. If sexual reproduction, two people coming together to create something new, is a kind of submerged metaphor for collaborative authorship, then the vision of sexuality we get here in Antioch is particularly troubling. Pericles is faced with a riddle. This is the riddle voiced by the daughter. She's never given a name, Antioch, Antioch's daughter. I am no viper, yet I feed on mother's flesh which did me breed. I sought a husband, in which labour I found that kindness in a father. He is father, son and husband mild, I mother, wife, and yet his child. How they may be, and yet in two, as you will live, resolve it you. The trouble with this riddle is that it is not rocket science. It goes under the guise of being cryptic, but really it dares the suitors of the Antiochian princess to name what cannot be named. Pericles' response is to flee. By flight, I'll shun the danger that I fear. This fear of incest, the fear of the truth, is what chases Pericles around the Mediterranean, from Antioch to Tarsus to Tyre to Pentapolis to Mytilene to Ephesus. And so even though incest is articulated in the early part of the play, the part generally attributed to Wilkins, remember he's supposed to have written the first two acts, it establishes the entire play's motif. We begin with a king and his daughter, we end with Pericles and Marina, another prince and daughter. Far then from being broken or discontinuous or inarticulate, the play circles rather too much on this motif. It is uncomfortably tightly structured. As Ruth Nevo, in a delicate and revealing psychoanalytical study of Pericles, has argued, the riddle is for Pericles a recognition of darkness in himself. This is Nevo. Antiochus is his uncanny double, and the progress of the play is the haunting of Pericles by the Antiochus in himself, the incest fear which he must repress and from which he must flee. What's so provocative and so interesting, I think, about Nevo's argument is that she suggests that Antioch is really an internal or a psychic landscape for Pericles rather than a situation into which he happens to bowl up. He is causally related to what he cannot acknowledge rather than coincidentally related to it. This might help us think more about causation and coincidence, both ways of understanding the relation between one event and another more widely across this play. And you might want to think about the subsequent events in Pericles and how they might look if we saw them as being motivated by rather than simply happening to Pericles. 
the winning of Thesa in a tournament and her subsequent death, the threat to Marina, the famine in Tarsus, etc. The episodic travel structure of the play blinds us into thinking that these are events that the unfortunate Pericles bumps into. A more psychoanalytical vision of the play would identify them as events he brings with him. We can see, I think, instinctively here that the journeying in the play can be read as psychological rather than actual, and further, that journeying and encountering these uh, events or playing out these episodes stand in for Pericles' rather absent or inscrutable personality. The reunion of Pericles and Marina at the end of the play is often identified as its poetic highlight, the scene perhaps in the play that we are most happy to attribute to Shakespeare. T.S. Eliot calls it one of the great recognition scenes in Shakespeare and writes a very uh, interesting and quite powerful poem, I think, uh, about uh, Marina uh, based on it. It comes about, you'll remember, because Lysimachus, the governor of Mytilene and one-time brothel customer, has been so impressed by Marina's tenacious virginity that he has been sent away cold as a snowball, as the disgusted proprietors describe it. They're worried that, in fact, Marina is going to uh, do for their trade. When Lysimachus hears of a grief-stricken man who has come by ship to Mytilene, he prescribes Marina as the perfect antidote. She questionless with her sweet harmony and other chosen attractions, would allure and make a battery through his deafened parts which now are midway stopped. She is all happy as the fairest of all, and her fellow maids now upon the leafy shelter that abuts against the island's side. The description here is a slightly awkward one. There are potentially sexual undertones to attraction, allure and deafened parts, which echo uh, disturbingly, really, with Lysimachus's uh, encounter with Marina, which did, of course, take place in the brothel. There's also a strange suggestion that Marina is sitting in some pastoral arbour with other uh, maids, rather than, as she actually is, trying grimly to hang on to her hymen in a dockside brothel. Unknown, though, to Lysimachus, the play is here returning Pericles to the scene of its original of his original trauma, it's returning him to that father-daughter incest from which he has been running, but which has turned out to be inside himself rather than exterior. Marina's hasty marriage to Lysimachus is one of the ways the play desperately tries to resist this inevitable encounter between father and daughter. It's constantly trying to start again, to rewrite, to move on, to have its last three acts cut free from the first two, to leave behind that seedy chancer George Wilkins and his terrible incest legacy over this play to escape what was established right at the beginning. The production of Pericles in Regent's Park in London in summer 2011 did just that, cutting Acts 1 and 2 to produce uh, a, a production widely advertised as suitable for ages 6 and above. The play, I think, is not itself so easily divisible nor so comfortably insulated. Antiochus and his daughter, we learn, are consumed by a thunderbolt. A fire from heaven came and shriveled up those bodies even to loathing. But the meeting of Pericles and Marina shares disquietingly in their incestuous rhetoric, just as it is plausible that the same actor would have played Antiochus's daughter and Marina. Thou that begettest him that did thee beget, 
Pericles exclaims, thou that begettest him that did thee beget, as he and Marina recognise each other, but also recalling unconsciously the language of incestuous coupling that neither he nor the play can quite shake off. Gower's epilogue brings together the two families, even as he tries to distinguish them. You'll hear, I don't know quite what to make of this, you'll hear he's broken into iambic pentameter. He's caught up uh, with the play's own time or something. In Antiochus and his daughter, you have heard of monstrous lust, the, the due and just reward. In Pericles, his queen and daughter seen, although assailed with fortune fierce and keen, virtue preserved from fell destruction's blast, led on by heaven and crowned with joy at last. So the play's epilogue tries to reinstate the theme of lawful as opposed to unlawful love that structured its source, Book 8 of Gower's Confessio Amantis. In doing so, it suggests a version of the play as a kind of morality tale. A production at the Globe in London in 2005 had Corinne Redgrave play the old Pericles as an on-stage chorus watching his younger self, played with Robert Luxay, going through his adventures. The music of the spheres in the reunion scene, music of the spheres is an otherworldly sort of harmonic system which signals the cosmic order of the planets, and also Pericles' dream vision of Diana, suggest that something like a divine benediction has fallen onto the play. Pericles' suffering and his peregrination come to stand for the human journey towards grace. And this more spiritual interpretation of the play may echo one striking aspect of the play's early performance history. We know that Pericles, along with King Lear, was performed by a group of recusant Catholic actors in the North Riding of Yorkshire in 1609-10. Perhaps the Marian echoes of Thesa's resurrection sequence, parallel to the revivification, as we've heard, of Hermione in The Winter's Tale, were part of its appeal in this context. Catholic connotations in the play, in particular the combination of music and scent at Thesa's rediscovery, and their echoes of Marian iconography, are well worth exploring. On the other hand, the providential power which organises the play does not seem to be explicitly Christian, The pre-Christian setting of the plot perhaps alleviates the need to tie it into religious forms of orthodoxy. We might think here also about the play's anxieties about maternity in this Marian context, the banishment of the female body at the point of childbirth, as in The Winter's Tale and less obviously in Comedy of Errors, and the absence of mothers elsewhere in the canon, has been linked by some scholars with social anxieties about female sexuality. These anxieties have their institutional framing in the religious ceremony of churching, where after a period of segregation following childbirth, the woman is reassumed into society following rituals of purification. If Pericles is running away from the threat of incest, he is also connectedly running away from the female. He is drawn towards it and repelled in equal measure, just as the play conflates the archetypes of virgin and whore in its depiction of Marina in the brothel, and ultimately finds its presiding goddess, in the chaste Diana. So, in today's lecture I've tried to approach the question of Pericles' reputation and its place in the Shakespearean canon by investigating the fact and the significance of its omission from the first folio. I've pointed out how popular Pericles was in the Jacobean period, much more so than any of Shakespeare's other late plays which we now tend to value more. 
and that therefore our marginalisation of this play from our considerations of Shakespeare's canon are distinctly out of step with early modern appreciations. I've tried to show how the suggestion that a work is collaborative tends to go hand in hand with the suggestion that it is not very good. But I've tried mostly to turn this theme of collaboration onto the play itself, to think about attitudes to sexuality and the overshadowing presence of incest, the thing uh, which Pericles is trying to escape from, as a model for a kind of perverse creativity across the play, and also to think about its own self-conscious and unusual depiction of Gower as an author figure. So I've tried to make my analysis of this play ask the question about why it is excluded from the edition of collected plays, and to make that a question with interpretive rather than strictly factual implications. My next lecture is going to be, in fact, at the time of recording this, it already has been King John. Uh, in that lecture, I ask, who killed Prince Arthur? Thank you. <laughs>